0: we're continuing tonight with our study of Deuteronomy, and today we're looking at uh, uh, the latter part of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So chapter 6, verses 10 through 25 is our passage this evening. Please turn there with me. Give your attention to the word of God. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes. Which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in the time to come, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all of this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and may he add his blessing to it this day. At various points in our lives, there are a number of things to which we aspire. We long to be admitted into some group or onto some team. We long to be accepted into a college or a training program. We long to get a certain job. We long to get married and have children, and we long to own our own home. Well, in all of those areas, once we obtain the thing that we've been looking forward to, we've just begun, haven't we? And we still have a lot to do. You don't just sit back and do nothing at that point. You, know, you don't buy a house and then say, okay, I'm set. Don't have to do anything now. No, you actually have a lot more to do, don't you? So these things obviously are wonderful blessings. They bring us a lot of benefits, but they also entail significant responsibilities. Well, this passage in Deuteronomy shows us that the same principle applied to Israel when they finally entered the promised land. And we can also apply this to our lives and say that the same principle applies to us when it comes to our redemption. Taking possession of the land did not mean that Israel was now free to live however they pleased. No, the Lord's purpose in bringing them out of their slavery in Egypt and through their wanderings in the wilderness was that he would rule over them in the place that he was giving as their inheritance. So as we study this passage today, we'll see how the redemption that God so graciously lavishes upon his people also places certain responsibilities on us. So our passage begins by emphasizing that the land into which the Israelites were about to enter was a gift from God. God was the one who brought them into the land of Canaan. And he didn't do this because of anything that they had done. You notice what it says at the beginning of the passage. It's because of what he swore to their fathers. Because of the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the gracious nature of this inheritance was also, or is also underscored here, by the fact that they didn't build up the civilization that they were inheriting. And it did take a great deal of work to make the land of Canaan prosperous. For one thing, it was a poorly watered land. It was subjected to a long dry season. That meant that they had to dig cisterns in order to have water. Well, that had already been done when Israel got there. The olive trees and the vineyards, they had been planted. They'd been carefully cultivated and they were already fruitful. And the cities and houses, they were already there. People didn't have to build them. They just had to enter into them, take possession of them. When the Israelites took possession of the land, all of that foundational work had already been done by the people whom they were displacing. And that just emphasizes the fact that this was a gift from God. Now, having pointed this out, the Lord then says this. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now when you think about it, it's not all that surprising that the Lord would say something like this. Uh, when things are going well for us, when our stomachs are full, when we're happy and content and secure and prosperous and healthy, at those points it can be very easy to forget God. Affluence often leads The spiritual indifference and moral carelessness. And if you want to see an example of that, just look at our own society, right? Probably the most affluent society of all time. And look what's happening to our culture. We have a tendency to focus so much on the enjoyment of the good gifts that God gives us that we lose sight of the giver. And the warning that the Lord issues in these verses about this is one that we too need to take to heart. This isn't just for Israel back in that time. Uh, Certainly there's some significant unrest in our nation right now. There is some instability, and it may actually become more unstable uh, in future months. But the bottom line is we still do have it pretty good here in America. And we need to remember that all of the material things that we enjoy come from the hand of the Lord. And more importantly than that, we need to maintain a heart of gratitude at all times for the redemption that God has so graciously bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. Now when Moses speaks of not forgetting the Lord, he's not merely referring to a matter of cognition. In the Bible, the concepts of remembering and forgetting have to do with a person's covenant commitments. The warning not to forget the Lord is a call to live in the fear and service of the Lord. And this is highlighted in our text by the fact that in Hebrew, the term that's translated in verse 13 as serve comes from the same root as the term that's translated in verse 12 as slavery. In Hebrew, it's the same basic word that's being used there, two slightly different forms. But this what this does is it sets a contrast between the two masters that the Israelites had served. In Egypt, they were subject to Pharaoh, who was a cruel taskmaster. But in Canaan, They would be bound to the Lord, their merciful and all-powerful liberator. Now, the people of Israel are also warned in our text not to forget the Lord by turning after other gods. And if you're familiar with uh, the Old Testament, you know that this is a recurring theme, this kind of warning. It's especially prominent in Deuteronomy, this book. Uh, that was given to the people of Israel as they're on the brink of entering into the promised land. The reason why this particular warning is stressed is because this was going to be a constant source of temptation for God's people once they settled in Canaan. It would be easy for them to be drawn to other gods, gods like Baal, because it seemed like they were less demanding. Than Yahweh. There wasn't really much of a moral code in that kind of religion. It was ceremonial and ritual. Uh, And also, those other gods were more immediately focused on material prosperity. That was really the emphasis in those pagan religions. Now, of course, you know, going after other gods, we've said this repeatedly, uh, is not a temptation that was unique to the Israelites under the old covenant. Uh, There's still plenty of idolatry today. We too face this temptation to go after other gods. One commentator puts it this way. We're always exposed to the lure and attraction of rival deities, the gods of the people around us. Contemporary society has been subtly infiltrated by worthless idolatry. Materialism, the god of what I can get, Hedonism, the God of what I enjoy. Social approval, the God of how I am regarded. Vaulting ambition, the God of what I must achieve. And there are many more. The believer's greatest ambition is to serve God and put him first. And that's really what's being communicated with this warning. Do not forget the Lord. So that brings us then to the second paragraph in our text, which begins with a warning not to put the Lord to the test. We test God when we impose conditions on him as the basis of our continued allegiance to him. This is what the Israelites did in the place that came to be known as Masa, a name that means testing. And we read about that episode in Israel's history in the book of Exodus in chapter 17 of that book. We're told there that as the Israelites continued on their way through the wilderness, they camped at a place called Rephidim. And that name is also significant because it means resting place. This was a resting place for them as they made their way through the wilderness. Well, much to their chagrin, when they arrived at that resting place, They discovered that this place to which the Lord had led them didn't have any water. And instead of calling out to the Lord for help in the midst of that crisis and trusting in him to provide for them, what did they do? They quarreled with Moses and with God. And in doing this, they were essentially bringing a lawsuit against God. They were charging the Lord with abandoning them and leaving them to die in the desert. It says in Exodus 17, 7, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You know, and implicit in that question is, well, if he was among us, he'd give us water, right? Now think about the audacity of that response. Think about what had happened just a couple chapters prior to that in the book of Exodus. God had done so much for that people. He had displayed his power in remarkable ways. And yet, as soon as adversity arose, what did they do? They panicked. They refused to trust him. They put the Lord to the test. Well, the events that unfolded at Massa remind us that times of adversity will come in our lives as well. And when such times come, We need to remember that they don't come as a surprise to God. The Lord wasn't caught off guard by the fact that there was no water at Massa. He was the one who led them there. He knew about the water supply problem. And in the same way, the Lord is in sovereign control over everything that transpires in your life and mine. When trials come, Don't doubt God's sovereignty. Don't doubt his faithfulness. Don't say, is the Lord among us? Is the Lord Lord with me or not? Don't conclude that he must not be with you if things don't go your way. That he must not care about you. Or even that he must not really exist. Instead, this is what you should do. Do what the psalmist does. In Psalm 131, he says this, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So instead of putting the Lord to the test when we're confronted by challenges, we need to do what he commands and trust that he'll be faithful to what he's promised. And for the Israelites, as they stood on the brink of the promised land, this meant going in and thrusting out their enemies, as it says in verse 19. Even though those enemies were living in heavily fortified cities like Jericho, So there was going to be um, a a test of their faith uh, as they stood on the brink of entering into the promised land there. Would they trust the Lord uh, even when it seemed that the odds were stacked against them? Well, that brings us then to the the final paragraph in the chapter. And here the focus is on the importance of teaching the next generation about the Lord. Uh, So when they get in the land... Again, there's there's something that they have to do. They need to pass on the faith to the next generation. And this was a vital element of Israel's ongoing existence as God's covenant people. Listen to the way Meredith Klein uh, expresses this in his commentary on Deuteronomy. Crucial to the well-being of the theocracy would be the faithful covenantal nurture of the children in the message of God's redemptive actions and purposes for his people. Now, we're no longer living in a theocracy, but the same principle still applies. The continued well-being of Christ's church depends on the faithful, covenantal nurture of our children. It's so important that the church not bleed its children out into the world. And unfortunately, that's been happening. Uh, And uh, there are many studies that have showed uh, that that uh, that is indeed happening, even in many evangelical churches. I think a big part of the problem uh, is in many of those churches, the, 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 the strategy that's employed in trying to keep the children in the church is to show the children, to persuade the children that the church really is not all that different than the world. The church is actually a pretty cool place, you know, and, um, and you don't need to risk um, uh, any kind of um, uh, uh, conflict with the world by being a part of the church. Um, I think that's a failed strategy. I think it's been proven to be ineffective time and time again. We need to teach our children that being a part of Christ's church mean, means being different. From the world. Yes, we live in the world, and yes, we strive to live at peace with the people of the world, but we are to be distinct from the world. Now, in verse 20, there at the beginning of this paragraph, Moses envisions that the Israelite children will ask their parents about the meaning of the testimonies, statutes, and rules that God has commanded them. Now there's something something implicit. In that question that the child asks in verse 20. And the thing that's implicit is that the Israelites should be striving to keep God's rules. And that the children recognize that. That these these rules and commandments, statutes are taken seriously. That this is the code by which we live. God is saying that there should be a marked difference between the lives of the Israelites And the lives of their pagan neighbors. And the children should take notice of that. Well the same thing should be true in the lives of Christians today. Do our children notice a difference between our standards, our commitments, our priorities. And the standards, commitments and priorities of those who belong to the world. There are a number of things that we need to do to demonstrate that difference and it could be we could go on and on but here's just a summary of some of those things first of all sanctifying the lord's day that's one thing that's very different from what the people of the world do participating in public worship and the life of the church living under the authority of the word of god refusing to affirm or go along with ideas or practices that run contrary to scripture And also just exercising discernment as we forego or participate in the various aspects of cultural life. Now Moses tells the Israelites to answer their children's questions about the meaning of the statutes and rules that God has given them by teaching their children about the mighty deeds of the Lord in redemptive history. I think that's very significant. Uh, You notice what's going on here. Uh, The children are being taught that this code by which they are to live, that this code has a context. It has a historical context. The law needs to be understood in light of that context. The law is the believer's rule of life. But it's not a set of man-made rules and it's not a a non-contextual thing either. It is the revealed moral will of the one who has set his love upon us and who has delivered us from bondage and taken us to be his very own. So as we see again and again in the Bible, God does not give his people his law in order that we might attain salvation by our performance of it. He gives us his law after he has graciously redeemed us. He calls us to walk in his ways because of what he has done for us. Now when we get to the end of this passage, it might seem that, well, verse 25 contradicts what I just said. Let me read verse 25 again. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God. As he has commanded us. So, is Moses saying that keeping God's commandments is the way to secure a righteous standing before God? Is that what he's saying there in that verse? Well, I think that we can be confident in saying that that is not at all what he is saying. And the reason why we can be confident about that is the Bible elsewhere makes it abundantly clear that it is impossible for anyone to be righteous in God's sight on the basis of doing what the law requires. Romans 3.20, for example. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then Galatians 3 says, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So I think that the point that's being made here in this last verse in our passage is simply that the law sets forth the standard of conduct that is righteous in God's sight. And even though we'll never perfectly live up to that standard as God's redeemed people, it is our duty to strive to do so. God blesses us in many, many ways in this life, in big ways and in small ways. Like the Israelites when they took possession of Canaan, there can be a danger in enjoying God's blessings. We can be tempted to value God's gifts more than we value him. And really that's a matter of idolatry. That's, I think it was John Calvin who actually defined idolatry that way. But we can also be tempted to put our trust in something other than God. and We can be tempted to put God to the test when things go awry, when the material blessings are removed or some of them are removed. And then also we can be tempted to get so caught up in material things that we neglect the duty of passing the faith on to others. Well, May the Lord keep us from such temptations, and may he grant us the grace that we need to serve and fear him always, to trust in his promises, and to be careful to do all that he's commanded us. Amen.